Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. Bible app, open or pull up Luke 15. We're also going to be in Matthew 26, if you want to stick a uh, finger there. One of uh, the most beautiful and also hardest parts of pastoral ministry, the, the role that I am honored to get to play in our church, um, is sitting with family members who have just lost a loved one. Um, by God's grace, uh, we haven't had to do it a ton. We do a lot more like baptisms and celebrating births, given the kind of general makeup of our family. But, but in, in the occasion where it's not that, it's, it's, it's hard. It's just really, really sad. Um, whether it's a, a, a widow and kids who just lost their dad, or parents of a child, or, or an unborn baby, or, or anything between. The, everyone processes things like this so incredibly differently, right? And, and so it's hard, not just because of that situation. And again, this isn't just because I'm a pastor. Like, you have friends, you have family members, and you've entered into that or been invited into that, and sometimes it's just paralyzing. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. Everyone processes so differently. You don't know the right thing in the moment. And so there can be lots of awkward silences, which for the record, those are okay. We don't love them, but they're okay. Um, But in the moment, the the, the people who have experienced the loss, the people sitting in the pain and the hurt, you know what they're really desperate for? They're desperate for good news. Because all of us in every situation are desperate for good news, but they feel the need for like something to be good in that moment more than maybe some of us do in, in other times, in normal times. Um, and I have friends who are counselors and a, a friend who is a hospital chaplain for a while. And, and some of these folks just rail against ministers uh, who come up to the hospitals because a lot of times we ministers can offer really bad advice instead of really good news in those moments. And there's a huge difference between bad advice and good news. Uh, it's just so easy to kind of throw out a platitude. It'll be okay. It will be, but you know how that feels in that moment? Like you're, you utterly don't care. You're making yourself feel better. It's easy to like put some cathartic balm on or, or just frankly avoid rather than engaging. This make sense? And again, thinking of your, your own situations, your own family members, your own friends, like surely you've had moments where you're like, I just don't know what to say. It's easier just to, to pull back or this kind of stuff. Um, this fall, if you haven't been walking with us, we're looking at different ways in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus meets different people in different points in their journey, different stories, different struggles, different needs, and shows himself to be really good news in each of those stories and struggles and needs. And today... We want to ask how Jesus is really good news for folks who are hurting and lost. Folks who are hurting and lost. Uh, how, how is Jesus better than advice? How is Jesus better than empty platitudes or catharsis? Or how is Jesus better than avoiding? And, and I want to offer kind of three ways today um, that Jesus is good news. First, we're going to see him enter the darkness. He's not, he's not scared of going into the darkness. That's really good news. Um, second, he frees us to acknowledge the reality of brokenness. And a lot of times we just want to avoid that anything's broken and keep it pretty and safe. But Jesus frees us to say, no, this is actually really broken. And then he speaks to our heads, excuse me, he does, but he speaks to our hearts more than our heads and offers restoration in in that form of brokenness. So uh, Father, I just want to pray that you would guide us and lead us. This is a 
a hard thing. There's the, the problem with feelings and hurt and pain is that even logic uh, can fly out the window at times, Lord. And so, God, I just pray that you give us a sensitivity to your spirit, um, whether we're in this place or whether we have friends, family members, neighbors that are in this place. Uh, would you help us to see and speak you as good news um, to the hurting and, and to the lost? It's in your name we pray. We can't do it by ourselves. Amen. All right, so the first way that Jesus is good news to the hurting and the lost is that he actually goes into the darkness. Uh, Luke tells us this uh, from the very first verse in this chapter. Jesus uh, was sitting with tax collectors and sinners. They were drawing near to hear him, and there were also Pharisees and scribes there. They were grumbling, saying, the man receives sinners, which is to say humans, and he eats with them. Um, now, who, who is Jesus teaching? Again, there's this mixed crowd. There's both the Pharisees and the sinners. There's the, the highs and lows of kind of cultural society going on here. And, and as Jesus is a religious teacher, he's claiming to be the one who comes from God, which group would he socially be ex, uh, expected to associate with? Scribes and Pharisees? Sinners and tax collectors? He's... He's supposed to be with the good folks, the clean folks, the Pharisees, the scribes. But what does Jesus say instead? Look at verse 4 if you're with me. He says, What, uh, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now just picture that. Like we picture shepherds, they're pretty, they're clean. Like he's gone to find a sheep. Like sheep don't get lost in open spaces. So he's been through the brambles, been down the crags, and he's, he's lifted up sheep. I grew up raising sheep. Fun fact, uh, they're not light. Um, the cute little lambs are, but that lasts, you know, as most growing mammals do for not very long. And so like he's hauling the sheep up, putting it on his shoulders, bringing it home by his power, not its own. And then he drives home this point as if that's not a clear enough picture of who Jesus prefers to associate with by, by telling another par- parable. What, what woman, having lost, uh, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me. You see the parallels between these? Rejoicing, rejoice, leaves, finds, for I found the coin that I have lost. Jesus is willing to call these people what they are. He's willing to say, you're safe, you look clean, but I'm, I'm going to go after the lost. I'm going to go after the broken. What, what's that communicate? I want you to hear Jesus is communicating great value and great worth on the person who's lost, hurting, and rejected. Not, not just not just worth for the righteous, the good, but, right, uh, but, but value and worth for those who are, quote-unquote, lost. In context, what he's talking about is folks who have rejected God, who have, who have been cast out by society. And how much worth and value is Jesus attributing to these folks? He's willing to leave the 99 righteous and good people and give time and energy and effort and sacrifice to find the one the one who's lost, the one who's rejected God. And and if the the story itself doesn't communicate that immense value and worth, then the way Jesus summarizes each of the stories does. Here's how he wraps up both stories. 
Just so I tell you, and I picture him kind of looking at the good folks here, the scribes. Just so I tell you, there will be much, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then after the coin story, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, or some translations say who comes home. One sinner who comes home. Now, now let me ask you this. As we sit in, in a room with mostly faithful folks who are pursuing Jesus, I don't want to assume that everybody in here would, would claim that, but many of us would. Those of you who might not claim to be following Jesus kind of probably look at those who do and go, yeah, you probably feel pretty righteous about yourself. Like we present pretty self-righteously, pretty good, pretty, pretty proud at times. So is it hard to hear that Jesus would leave us for, for the one? And maybe to, to ponder this a little bit, to reflect on this a little bit, what was, what was your life like when Jesus first pursued and met and found you? There's like overt, big, like, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll brokenness, and there's a lot of like subtle, hidden, prideful things we're not allowed to talk about brokenness. What was your life like when Jesus met you? How were you broken and needy? In what way were you lost internally or externally? And, and just ponder for a moment, do you know that heaven itself rejoiced when Jesus found you? In the exact state, in the exact moment of your journey, in the exact need that you had, heaven rejoiced when Jesus revealed himself to you as truly good news for your exact need in that state, in that moment of your story. Is that good news? Heaven didn't rejoice when you like, finally quite got your act together and cleaned up. Heaven rejoiced when Jesus came and found you and brought you home. Another question, just to, to ponder, uh, which group do you associate with more? Do you relate to more? Which group would define you more? The, the kind of righteous and good who Jesus was willing to leave? <laughs> or the lost, needy, those who had rejected God the ones that Jesus seeks, the ones that angels rejoice over. And which group are you most likely to spend time with? Like, do we wall ourselves away with this only Jesus community to kind of keep the sin germs away? Or, or do we follow Jesus and go into the darkness and meet people in their lostness and their rejection of God and hurt and pain? Now, these are stories Jesus is telling, but what are some, let's talk for a minute, what are some ways that Jesus went into the darkness? What are some ways that Jesus actually didn't just tell stories about, but modeled meeting people where they're at? Who are some people that Jesus met without saying, hey, you got to clean up first and then come talk to me? Who did he go pursue? Who did he go meet? Lepers, tax collectors, one at the well. Who else? Disciples. Yeah, thanks for bringing that in. All of them. We're lost in pursuing their own. There again, there's, the, the, there's like the big, oh, the tax collector thing, but every one of the disciples had their own stories, their own needs, their own brokenness, just like we all do. I love the, I love the, the picture of the leper because in taking away their leprosy, in touching them, Jesus literally took on their uncleanness to make them clean. Like what, what a picture of the gospel. They couldn't clean themselves up, and so he made them clean. This makes sense? The point, like Jesus was willing to reject the religious rules, to become unclean himself, and to leave those who look good 
to enter the darkness to seek the lost and hurting and needy. And guess what? As he did, he didn't just tell him to stop. Just didn't say, hey, leave the darkness. Make yourself better. You know how Jesus is good news to you if you're there or people around you if, you, if they're in that spot, if they're in the quote-unquote proverbial darkness? Jesus brought light. Jesus was light. He's the light of the world. He didn't make people in the darkness find the light. He took the light of life to the people in darkness who might not have even known they were in darkness. And you know what he does today? He still does that in part by sending us into the darkness to be the light of Christ. Like if we ask this fall, how are we like seeing and speaking Jesus's good news? The, the first way is to recall and remember how Jesus met us in darkness and how Jesus sends us to be good news into darkness. This is, we named our church because of this concept. We're salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so let your light shine for the glory of your Father in heaven. This makes sense? This is, this is the first way that Jesus is good news to the hurting and lost. He actually left comfort, left religion, left cleanness, and went into the darkness to meet people in their precise need and their precise state. Is that really good news? It's really good news. And it leads to a second way that Jesus is good news. In bringing light into the darkness, Jesus freed people to admit and to call brokenness what it is. He freed people to admit brokenness and just to acknowledge what brokenness is. Um, we've already seen, for the record, we've seen Jesus this fall uh, weep over death. Uh, we, we've not looked at this, but a famous scene, Jesus gets angry and turns over tables in a temple. Um, I don't know how you can do that and be sinless, but historic theology says Jesus was sinless. And so apparently it is, it is okay and good sometimes to be angry and to respond. It's okay to be sad. Like it's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel. What's the state of the lost sheep and the lost coin? They're, they're lost. They're not as God created them to be. There's brokenness there. And Jesus is willing to call them what they are. So, and, and again, Jesus tells this third story in Luke 15. It's what Brandon read. It's the story of a man who had two sons. One asked for his inheritance. And if you don't know contextually, what he was saying is, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine. I'm going to treat you as if you're gone. That's, I mean, if you if, if those of us who have, you know, a few nickels of inheritance coming our way, if you went to your parents now and said, hey, I'd like that now, what are you saying to them? We're done. You're dead to me. And then he went and squandered it. And then there's this turning point of the story in verse 17, where he comes to himself and says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread while I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the turning point of a really dark story 
into a really good story. But what are some of the forms of brokenness, loss, hurt that the, the younger son is walking in here? What are some of the forms of brokenness he's in? Um, he has sinned, right? He's, re, he's, he's sinned against God, sinned against his family. There's spiritual brokenness. And that's where a lot of us camp out when we think of brokenness of the world. But, but what, what other forms of brokenness is younger bro walking in here? Financial, bro, he's destitute, he's squandered, so there's actually like a, a, a physical, physical economic brokenness. He says he's hungry. He wouldn't be hungry if he wasn't financially destitute. So there's like this physical brokenness that he's experiencing as well. Um, there's also a relational brokenness here, right? I mean, it started with, hey, dad, I want you to be dead. It's probably not going to be helpful for the relationship. But he even says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Physical brokenness, spiritual brokenness, relational brokenness. And it's impossible to read the rest and not go, yeah, there's emotional brokenness as well. Uh, Jaron Bars, whose book was helpful in this series, uh, talks about I, the isolation and hiding that this guy's doing. He's feeling shame. There's, there's physical, emotional, spiritual, relational brokenness. And this is the, the truth that this leading us to talk about hurting and lost, folks who are hurting, folks who are lost on the same day, because they're so intertwined. But we don't often think of them as intertwined. But, but follow me on this. On one hand, many people who are hurting are hurting because they've experienced some loss. Is that fair? Like some physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, financial, something. Like on some realm of life, like we're not hurting if everything's good. So there's some loss, there's some brokenness that leads us to some level of pain and hurt. On the other hand, though, or to make it cyclical, many who are lost and those who have rejected God do so because of some form of pain and hurt. Is that fair? Was that any of us? Is that any of us? God, if this is who you are, I'm out. If this is what Christianity is about, I want nothing to do with that. Is this somebody you know? Like, so the rejection of God, the, the choosing to leave the 99 often comes from some form of wounding, some form of hurt, some form of pain. And if we missed how intertwined these two things are, then we, who are called to be God's good news people, we don't know how to offer real good news to folks who are hurting and folks who are lost. And so instead we do a couple things. One, we'll address the bleed, the internal bleed with a Band-Aid. We'll address the internal bleed with a band-aid. Oh, I see you're hurting. You know what? It's, it's not that bad. Let me give you advice. Just do X, Y, and Z, and then everything will be better. If Jess was in here, she'd tell you I do this to her all the time. Like She'll come and be like, I had this day. And I was like, well, you know, you should have done differently. She's like, I don't care. Not helpful right now. I just want you to know this. I just want you to tell me it's going to be okay. I was like, well, it would be okay. if you Like, <laughs> that's, my, that's my mind. I've grown a lot in it, I think, over the 17 years we've been married. But man, year one, whew, I've had all sorts of ways to fix her right up. But, but what she was experiencing, and again, she does it to me sometimes too, it's fair. Um, <laughs> but but the, the true hurt, the true pain, the true brokenness, we all know this, very rarely is it what we're like expressing or, or, or feeling or first like attributing it to. Um, when we see a bruise on our arm, we're not like, huh, just cover that thing right up. Like there's something going on underneath the surface, but we 
humans, including followers of Jesus, we, we don't know what to do with the under the surface thing. We don't, know, we don't know questions to ask to really even diagnose and find out what's going on under the surface. Again, this is where like, it's so much easier just to avoid or go, I don't want to make it worse. I don't know the right thing to say. So, so we cover it with, with a Band-Aid. Um, in Proverbs 20, the wise proverb writer said, the purpose of a man's heart, also women, purpose of human's heart is like a deep water, but a person of understanding will draw it out. And here's the image. And again, I don't think I have to convince you of this, especially in moments where you feel hurt, pain, loss. Um, waters of the heart are tumultuous and ever-changing and just like follow the image of what water does. Like it's chaotic sometimes. And so someone who understands, someone who wants to enter in will draw out what's really going on, which takes time and energy and effort and risk because you might ask the wrong question. But, but if we're truly good news people, it means that we're a patient people. We're a listening people. Again, humans, even Christians, are not known for our ability to listen to other people. We have a lot to tell people. But do we listen well to people? Do we ask good questions? Do we invite the depths of someone's heart? This is one of the things we see in Jesus over and over and over. There's some 339 questions that he asks in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, Jesus also gives answers. He also teaches at times this kind of stuff. But so often, even when he's asked a question, what does he do? Turn around and ask an even better question back. How do we do that? So that's one of the, one of the things we do if we don't know how to offer actual good news. The other thing we do is, is kind of we ignore the heart and we speak to the head. Again, these things are somewhat intertwined. In other words, we ignore, we ignore the reality of the broken world and the broken state that we're all in, and instead we just speak to the spiritual reality. Again, there's a reason most of the time when folks look through the prodigal son, what you see is, well, I've sinned against the Father and against you. Is that part of what's going on? Yes. Is it all of what's going on? No. This guy's broken on so many levels. And so if he were to come home back into our family, we might do something logical, like, I don't know, an older brother who said, hey, dad, let me walk through all the reasons you should love me more than him. But you know what the father does? He goes, that doesn't matter. He was lost and he's found. That's not a head level logical argument. It's a heart level relational level, spiritual bond kind of level response to what's going on in the younger son. So if we just enter in and speak like Christian platitudes in the midst of hurt and brokenness, even if they are true objectively, put yourself in their shoes and go, is this helpful in this moment? Well, I understand this deep, deep loss you're walking through. God's at work for your good, brother. In the face of some untimely death, well, God works in all things for his purposes. Now again, I want to be careful. Are both those statements true? Yes. Are we always in a moment where it's helpful to hear those things or to speak those things? No. We said before this fall that Job, who like suffered a whole lot in the Old Testament, 
his friends who offered him advice, offered really bad advice, and were at their best when what? When they were sitting quietly, just being present with him. And sometimes people, sometimes we, just need to know someone's got our back, that there's somebody there with us. There's a time for logic. There's a time for truth. There's also a time for silence and grief. Ecclesiastes can be helpful here. For everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And then some of the things that the, the poet writes is there's a time to weep as well as a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. You know what mourning doesn't do? Oh, this is sad, but let's talk about how to make it better. Mourning just, just mourns. Mourning just grieves. Mourning just laments. There's a time to keep silence. Maybe that's the one all of us just need to learn at some point. And then, and then there's a time to speak. It's both. So often we only know how to address hurt, loss, pain in one of these ways. But Jesus, both in, in the stories he's telling here and throughout his ministry, addresses hurt and pain differently. He frees people to acknowledge the various types and very levels of real brokenness. He lets people feel He'll even feel with them. And he will correct, but he's so patient and he's so loving and so gracious. And so what would it look like in, in your soul, to be honest, about, about the broken world around you? Like to feel the freedom to actually call brokenness sad. What would it feel like for you to be angry at things that God gets angry at? What would it look like for you to be sad and lament things that God would say, this is not how the world should be? So many of us have been taught you're not allowed to feel those things because God's in control. God is in control, but man, we live in a broken world. And we see it out there, and we pray for peace because it's chaotic and fear-causing. Fear in this kind of, But we also know the deep waters of, of our own hearts. And even if we don't feel like we're allowed to say those things out loud, we, we know who we are. What would it feel like? What would it be like for you if you were able to just actually say, this is broken. This is wrong. What would it be like for a friend or neighbor or family member who knows Jesus, or maybe especially who doesn't know Jesus, what would it be like for them to encounter you, not someone who portrays yourself as perfect and having it all together, praise God, over-spiritual, non-gracious, but, but rather if they experience you as a woman or a man who cares and listens and is patient and is willing to admit areas you still need help, not just areas that you can offer help to them. Because it's in our brokenness and need that, that Jesus becomes even better news by contrast. Because we are broken and hurting and needy and he offers restoration and redemption and help. You following me? If I'm honest, this was a hard one for me to put together this week, to pray through, think through over these last couple weeks, because um, this touches some spaces that humans don't like to let each other in on. And, and there's a version of all of us, including myself, that could walk out of here today being like, yeah, okay, that's objectively true. And then go back into our own lives where we're taught to cover our hurt and pain and brokenness, and certainly not to enter into your hurt and pain and brokenness. And my deepest prayer is that God would like break a, break a little bit of crack in, in that mindset 
and that a little bit of light would shine through and that he would lead us, even if it's just to take one step with someone to let someone know, Hey, I've, there's something in me that's hurting. There's something in me that's broken or to go, man, we've walked with each other for a long time. I've never asked you this question. Can I ask you about this thing that you keep kind of weaving into our conversation rather than ignoring it? Cause it's hard. I'd love to know about that. And whether that turns into tears and prayers and that kind of stuff, or whether it's just, thank you for telling me. It feels like both of those would be a win. Relational, spiritual brokenness, physical, emotional brokenness. It's all so real. So Jesus enters the darkness in the world, and then Jesus enters our darkness by, by allowing and reflecting the ability to call brokenness what it is, to call crap what it is, to call stronger words than crap, but there's still some young kids in here, what it is. And so bottom line, and this is the third way that Jesus has good news to the hurting and lost, he speaks to the heart more than the head. And in doing so, he offers actual helpful restoration. So again, he offers, he offers a model, a different way to enter brokenness than most of us know. Like, look at the, at the father in the prodigal son story. While he was a, young, a, a long way off, while, while, while the guy who said, Dad, you're dead to me, was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And a little bit later, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. What does the father do? Look at the words. Pursues, ran after, embraces, kisses, restores. Like you guys, the, the father representing Jesus in the story does not shy away from the depths of brokenness. Even though the father was rejected by the son, the father pursues the hurting and lost and broken child as an example of your good father pursuing his hurting and lost and broken children. He pursued you and he pursues you. Is that good news? even when you rejected him and reject him. Is that good news? The father representing Jesus in the story doesn't get into facts and stats and, well, you should have done this and I told you so. He embraces and celebrates his son and restores the lost levels of brokenness. Like spiritually, the lost and hurting son is forgiven just as Jesus offers forgiveness to lost and hurting you. Relationally, the Son is restored, just as God the Father offers to restore you. Emotionally, the Son is met in his pain and is embraced and lavished and celebrated as welcome, just, just as the heavens embrace and lavish and celebrate and rejoice over each lost and hurting child being brought back home. And in lavishing his son with love, the father also met physical needs. The cloak was a celebration thing. It also warmed him up. The shoes protected his feet as well as covered probably a lot of cuts and bruises. 
He put food in his belly, which is both a feast and a nourishment. Do you get this? The, the, the point is that Jesus cares about restoring all aspects of brokenness. Why? Because God made us holistic beings. God created us, created us to be spiritual and emotional and physical and relational beings. And so God cares about our spiritual and physical and emotional, emotional, yep, and emotional and relational hurt and pain. Again, to go back to Dr. Bars, one of the things that he says is one of the most striking things about Jesus is he, he never seems to look at people in this kind of summarize by one obvious characteristic and dismiss them manner. I'm sure none of us have ever looked at anyone in that manner either. We find that in every story we look at that Jesus treats each person with dignity and respect, despite the shame that accompanies the sin in their lives. One of the most important lessons we can learn from Jesus is this, to see beyond the exterior of a person, especially beyond their sin, and to treat him with honor, and to treat him with love. So I'm going to ask, where in your life do you need to know that Jesus sees you like that? That he doesn't see you as this, oh, here's the defining thing. They're out. I put them in this category. Like, where do you need, where do you today, not just when you first started to follow Jesus, but like, where today do you need to know Jesus sees you like that? And who do you know that needs to see Jesus like that? And again, we've already seen the older brother, but the father goes to him and says, hey, I get you're having a hard time with this. But look what he says to the older son. He says, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. What's he saying there? He's, he's again meeting him in the relationship, the provisional, like there's care and there's father-sonness to that. Like the older brother's just as broken, just an utterly different way as the younger brother. And, and yet the father engages him as well, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, because he's a good father. And he does. So in, in the first two stories, coin, sheep, Jesus ends by saying, there's a sinner who repents, a lost person is found. What's the words here? that the father uses to refer to the younger son? There is lost and found. What else is there though? My son who is dead is now alive. Spiritually, relationally, physically, emotionally dead. You ever felt any of those? Not physically, you're in the room. Have you ever felt any of those other ones? <laughs> Jesus meets you in every type of hurt and loss and pain and proverbial death. And Jesus brings light into your specific darkness. And Jesus meets your friend, family member, neighbor in their specific proverbial type of death and wants to bring light, maybe through you, into that darkness. And Jesus restores all forms of brokenness. Now, here's, here's part of what makes this topic hard is because we've learned just to accept hurt and loss and pain and death as a reality. And between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, like it is, like it is part of our reality, but, but we fail to remember like this is not how God designed the world to be. Like there's a reason it hurts. There's a reason we're free to call brokenness brokenness because that was not God's heart. 
nor will it be like this every day. Like the first and last chapters of the Bible give us a glimpse of the world and life as God intended. And again, this is good news for our pain and hurt. In Jesus, God promises that world and that life is our future guaranteed. But the Bible promises as well in every New Testament book that in this era, suffering is real. And the Bible shows us time and time again that death is real and brokenness is real. And into that promise and into that darkness, God sends his son to be the light of the world. Not just in Genesis 1 and 2, not just in Revelation 20 and 21, but Jesus is the light of the world now. Like the true balm in the Bible for things like don't be anxious and don't worry and don't fear, which for the record, like we'll quote to people, well, the Bible says don't be anxious. Yeah, let me just stop being anxious then. Turns out there's another part of that verse. You know, you, you know what God always follows that up with? Don't be anxious because I am with you. And man, if we fail to remind folks of that, then we're saying the good news is you stopping being anxious. That's not the good news. The good news is going, hey, Jesus is with you in this. You may not fix everything, but he's there. Is that better news than just stop being worried? Uh, the hope of the famous psalm is that we have a good shepherd who's walking with us where? Only once we climb back out of the valley and clean ourselves up and come back to his temple? No. Where does a good shepherd walk with us? In the valley of the shadow of death. The Spirit is a helper, Jesus says, who points us to truth, but also points us to the presence of God in our lives. Y'all, God is not distanced from our hurt and loss. God is with you in it. And, and I want to close by, by reminding us of the extent to which Jesus was willing to enter our hurt and pain and loss and darkness. I'm going to read this over you because I, 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 want, I want us to remember how far Jesus went to be present with us and to pursue us and to restore us and bring us from death to life. This is Jesus in the garden the night before he died. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And a little bit later, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let, not, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Then a little bit later, for a second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass from Unless I drink it, then your will be done. And then again, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Do you think he didn't think his father was hearing him? So he had to, hey, you there? You there? You there? No, that's not what's happening. This is the cry of a desperate, hurting, painful experience. Don't let this happen. And yet it's mixed with this beautiful trust. I can't see fully what's going on, but I, I want your will to be done. And we need to see God the Father did not take away Jesus' pain and suffering. Like when we talk about Jesus being present with us, like he gets pain. He gets death. He gets being despised and rejected. God doesn't always promise us relief when we ask either. 
And we got to acknowledge that. But God is present with Jesus, and God comforts Jesus, just as the Spirit is sent to be present and comfort us. And again, we see in Jesus a trust of the Father as part of God's kingdom, marked by love and pursuit and healing and rejoicing. But in order to take his rightful throne in that kingdom, what did Jesus have to do? He had to suffer. He had to die. He died physically on a cross. He died emotionally. Another gospel writer talks about Jesus sweating blood this night. He died relationally. We're told he was forsaken by the Father. So he died spiritually in some way. Some sketchy theology in that, but I think it's true. He's forsaken for just a moment by the Father. Relationally, he's broken. Like there's hope and there's presence and there's comfort and there's fellowship with Jesus in your suffering and death. He has been there. And so I just want to close by saying, who, who represents us in Jesus' stories? We're the lost coin. We're the lost sheep. We're one of the sons. Maybe sometimes we're either son. Who represents God? The good shepherd does. Who's tired and bloody from pursuing us, not in the open fields, but in the crags and brambles in our lostness. The woman who seeks the coin is the one who represents the father. She won't give up seeking until she's found what was lost. And the loving father represents God. He took on great shame to bring his son home. Men at the time did not show their legs, did not run. He would have been mocked and despised and made fun of. But even after we reject the father and prefer to use him just for stuff over a true relationship, and even after we more than symbolically kill him, but literally as humanity collectively put Jesus to death, the father sent his son to meet us in our hurt and pain and bring you home. And the Father heals our spiritual, emotional, physical, relational wounds with his love, at least fully in the next life. And the Father is with us in our spiritual, emotional, physical, relational wounds. And he loves us and he shows us his love by his own wounds. And this is good news for moments when we're hurting and lost.